This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we discover what life was like for Roman soldiers stationed on Hadrian's Wall. And we get a real sense of what life was like in a series of letters that were found at Vindolanda and they're now in the British Museum. So these are wafer-thin pieces of wood and they've actually got ink and handwriting on. We'll hear why this 73-mile fortified boundary was built across northern England. This is in the context of an emperor who is very new to his role. There's been a period of rapid conquest And so what he's doing is he's stepping away from this process of constant expansion and trying to consolidate. And we'll find out about the stunning artefacts that help tell its story. Don't forget, we're here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now, this week, we're going to attempt to scale the vast subject that is Hadrian's Wall. And as ancient engineering achievements go, this is a mighty one. Joining me in the studio to discuss the building of this English heritage and world heritage site, which is now nearly 1900 years old, are Dr. Andrew Roberts and Dr. Rachel Wilkinson. Welcome to you both. Now, Andrew, if I could start with you first, who was Hadrian? Hadrian, or to give him his full name, Publius Aelius Hadrianus, was the Roman emperor between AD 117 and AD 138. He was the adopted son of Trajan, and he inherited a vast and complex empire that stretched from North Africa to the Middle East to Britain in the Northwest. He essentially is the executive power in the empire, and one of his many duties was to effectively be the commander-in-chief of the Roman army and thus define and oversee the military strategy for the empire. How long did he reign for? Between AD 117 and AD 138. So he had a good couple of decades in order to set out a whole programme of reforms to the empire and ruled in a very different style to some of his predecessors. Uh, What stage in the history of the Roman empire are we here then? Rome is close to its greatest extent. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not without problems. And in fact, Hadrian's strategy of consolidating the borders are in response to the fact that the empire has been growing rapidly over the previous century or so. And thanks to that period of rapid expansion, there are a lot of issues, particularly in the border regions with the peoples that they've encountered that they fought wars against. We are about a century or so into the reign of, of Roman Empire. So Rome, Rome is controlled by one one man at the top. And we're still 300 or so years until the end of the Roman Empire. So I guess it, it, it's at its height. It's still uh, incredibly successful militarily. And they've managed to reach up into sort of the north of England. So the stone wall, the bit that most people would recognise in pictures as Hadrian's Wall, stretches from Bowness and Solway in Cumbria through Northumberland to Newcastle. But actually, west from Bowness, out to Maryport, we see further fortifications in the sort of form of um, turrets and mile castles. So really, it, it pretty much stretches from coast to coast. That's how long exactly? How many miles? So the wall itself is uh, 73 miles. So the stone bit. But I've heard that uh, our miles today are different from Roman miles. Is that right? Yeah, that's about 80 Roman miles. Right. More or less, yeah. Okay. It's a nice round number. <laughs> it's easier to remember, certainly. <laughs> what was there before Hadrian's Wall then? 
there were many local communities settled in that area mm-hmm. and they did have some understanding of the Romans. We do have evidence at some of the sites that Roman imports were arriving, so they might have been aware of the goods that the Romans could bring but weren't necessarily in contact with them until probably the AD 70s when the armies got this far. So invasion started in the south in AD 43 and Gradually, sort of by AD 70, most of Britain was conquered up until sort of the point of Hadrian's Wall with various sort of incursions into Scotland afterwards. Unsuccessful. Is that why it was built, Andrew? I think that's it's certainly relevant. It sounds um, like there was a culture clash between the north and the south there. The Roman Empire had pushed up so far and then it perhaps met resistance. Certainly more resistance towards the north than in the south. A lot of the tribes in... They do say that southerners are soft, (laughs) these days. No, I don't think think it's necessarily because they were soft. A lot of the peoples living in in southern Britain already had material exchange with the Roman Empire. They'd already traded with them. Some were sort of informal kind of clients of the Roman Emperor, and they weren't necessarily averse to the Roman way of life or to Roman rule. But certainly as you got further north and further north... for the west into into Wales, the tribes were more resistant to the sort of Roman incursions. And there was, in the 70s and the 80s, a concerted effort by the Romans to conquer the entire island of, of Britain. And they were looking as though for, for a time that they would be successful, but events elsewhere in the empire meant that the attention of the emperors were drawn elsewhere and the troops that were conducting the conquest withdrew. And the Romans sort of dropped back further south from Scotland to roughly where Hadrian's Wall is today and sort of settled on a sort of frontier zone. Although they hadn't necessarily given up on conquering Britain, this is something that becomes formalised under Hadrian. This sort of border region becomes formalised. They wanted to create a border for the Roman Empire. Would that be correct? Yeah, let's sort of go back a little bit and, and kind of consider Hadrian and his aspirations and his military strategy. Mm. Hadrian visits Britain in AD 122. And at that point, he's either there to kick off the building of this wall or he's overseeing something that's uh, already been started. And this is in the context of an emperor who is very new to his role and is purposely going across his empire, particularly the border regions, trying to reform these borders and put them in order. So as I said, there's been a period of rapid conquest by his predecessors, particularly his adoptive father, Trajan, who's mounted conquests against the modern the Parthians, so more or less from modern-day Iran, in Dacia, modern-day uh, Romania, and potentially there's been a war or some kind of uprising in Britain, which the evidence is not clear, but it seems as though there was some local trouble here as well. And so what he's doing is he's stepping away from this process of constant expansion and trying to consolidate the existing territory and put that in order. So in some respects, it's a sort of defensive statement. It can certainly be read like that. A lot of the evidence that we have points to the wall having different functions. And unfortunately, we don't have a clear statement. We don't have any sort of written evidence as to what Hadrian had in mind. We have a one line from a biography of Hadrian written a couple of hundred years after his death, which suggests that he wanted to build a wall in order to separate the Romans from the barbarians. Now, the barbarians is a very pejorative term that the Romans thought of everybody outside of their empires being sort of inferior. But if we can read anything into that statement, it seems as though 
what they wanted was some kind of symbolic separation between the province of Britain and those living outside. But we shouldn't necessarily read into that that the Romans were almost in fear and sort of wanted to sort of stay behind their walls and and have it sort of protect them. They still would have operated in the landscape to the north of Hadrian's Wall, but it certainly would have been effective against anyone potentially wanting to raid the province of Britain. Oh, that's really interesting. So they were operating north of it? Yeah, and while the war was in operation, there were still outposts to the north, and they certainly would have patrolled the lands to the north of Hadrian's Wall. So the wall Mm. certainly would have controlled movement of people, even if, with concerted effort, you perhaps could have managed to get over it. Mm. And it certainly changed the area, particularly for the local communities that have been there previously. We see many sites abandoned at that point. New sites are coming up, being created, often with quite a lot of Roman objects there suggesting that there's exchange potentially quite close relationships Mm. and there's also the argument that farming changes from a focus on more sort of crop-based farming to cattle and animals evidence is slightly uncertain on that but it, it may well be because they're trying to supply the wall so for these people they've suddenly got people coming from all over the empire speaking languages that potentially they've never heard before and then this huge stone structure is erected across what would have been their landscape, controlling movement. So it really would have been quite a shock for some of those local communities seeing the whole area change in potentially in a couple of generations, sometimes even one. They would have been able to stop you from crossing. So say you're trading with communities beyond the wall, it certainly would have made it a lot harder for you to keep those links and networks going. I have heard that it's unlike any other Roman frontier. I think there was a an academic who who wrote something about that. And he also said that nowhere else are its defences so elaborate or so monumental in scale. We're talking about England's Great Wall of China in a way, aren't we? It's one of those big structures. It's not quite as big as impressive as the Great Wall of China, but yes, (laughs) I get your point. I think you're broadly broadly correct. On a 73-mile stretch of land, (laughs) it's still from coast to coast. It's still pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, I think think you need to put it in context of... what was there before? So about 20 years before the wall was started to be built, the Romans had fallen back to a line of fortifications joined together by a road just to the south of where Hadrian's Wall is today. So across that Tyne, Sorway, Isthmus. Mm-hmm. And that's very much a a more traditional Roman frontier. So what you have are military installations, large, i.e. large forts, uh, smaller watchtowers at strategic points within the landscape, and then they're joined together by a road. So w- what you can do with that uh, is that you can monitor movement through that landscape, and then you have bases for troops that can respond to any kind of emergency. What that isn't is a continuous barrier. But then when Hadrian takes over, he sets out to purposely create these more continuous barriers which will close these more open frontiers. Hadrian's Wall is not the only example of that. Hadrian does the same thing in Germany and, and many of those fortifications can still be seen today. But it's probably the most extreme example. You have a really dense sort of intensity of military installations is something in the region of sort of 240, I think. And when you Uh, say military installations, what what does that mean? Sort of forts, mile castles, turrets. So anything that is essentially a stronghold, uh, for want of a better term. So all the the way along, 
mm. if we can describe to listeners what it looks like. You, you've mentioned these mile castles. Yeah. I presume every mile there's a little sort of almost yep. like a castle. <laughs> the name gives it away, yeah. yeah. So that every, every Roman mile there is a, a small fort which could accommodate, say, so up to 30. There's 80 of those then? Yes, wow. in principle, yes. I don't think we found 80, but yeah, in, in, in theory there are 80. Mm. So there's, there's one of these every mile. You can have a garrison of 30. Between each mile castle, there are two turrets, which are much, much smaller, but they still can accommodate, say, half a dozen, a dozen soldiers. Okay. And then you have these large forts, which have maybe 500 soldiers or up to 1,000 soldiers. Linking these together is this up to three metre thick wall, stone wall, uh, although it's actually turf uh, originally in other part, uh, in, in some sections, mm-hmm. which is a pretty imposing structure, which allows you, we presume, to stand on top and, and to monitor what's going on and also potentially to fight off any attacks on the wall. So from a bird's eye view, if you're looking at the uh, wall from you know, along the 73-mile stretch. What have you got, apart from these mile castles and these turrets all the way along? I mean, have you got sort of a bit of a sort of Berlin Wall scenario where you've got uh, defences either side? That sort yeah, of thing? That, that's, another, that's another thing that's, that's really sets Hadrian's Wall apart, is that you've got depth as well as height. Because how high um, is it? We don't know for certain, okay. but it's probably at least four and a half metres high up until what we presume was the wall walk, so the bit that the people could stand on, presumably. Right. But then above that, we don't know exactly because the stones have been removed in the later period. So we presume it would have been another metre or so above that where the crenulations would have been. In front of the wall, you've got a ditch, V-shaped ditch, which is deep as well. That's an imposing barrier in itself. Then you've got the wall, then you've got a bit of a gap, and then you have something called the vallum, which is a pretty substantial earthwork consisting of an enormous ditch and two large mounds as well. And that's almost like the backstop that defines this controlled, militarised zone. Sounds like there's a lot of people living along this entire stretch of wall. I mean, it's, you know, you mentioned about 30 per garrison? Up to. Potentially. And this is in the mile castle bit? That's just in the mile castles, and, and you've got maybe half a dozen in, in the turrets. And then you also have about 15 larger forts, which have garrisons of either about 500 or either up to 1,000. So really, you're talking about a really, really long countrywide city. But I think we've also got to remember that it's not just soldiers along this wall. Men, women, children. So they'd be living in these, these forts, these, these sort of little villages dotted along the the stretch of the wall? I'd say they're more like towns, and like towns, towns okay. potentially like any other across the Roman Empire. Mm. It's an extended community, really, of, of thousands, and they're, they're not just there to work, they're there to live. So the whole breadth of, of life in the Roman Empire is visible in the archaeological and the material record. It's not just Northern Britons there. I mean, we're seeing people from all over the empire coming, so not necessarily coming as soldiers, but we've got Barathas, a Syrian, who was a flag merchant. So he'd travelled with the Roman army and had ended up in Northern Britain. We've got families that travel with the soldiers, not just, say, sort of wives and or partners, but brothers and sisters, we find out from letters, also often accompanied soldiers. And people did move around in Britain. So there's a gravestone from South Shields and it is set up by Barathas and he writes a little inscription in the bottom underneath the Latin in Palmyran, his home language. But it's to his wife, Regina, who was actually a freed slave from Essex. And wow. her name Regina 
probably could be shortened today to Queenie. So, Oh yeah, Regina is, is Latin for Queen, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, I mean, it just Queenie from Essex. I, It's just wonderful, these stories that come out from studying it. So really, it's, it's a huge melting pot. I don't think we can assume that the Britons were staying in one particular place. There were networks, people were travelling, they had contact, not only within Britain, but within Europe as well. So we've established that this is a vast structure. I mean, how long did it take to build? Who built it? Well, Hadrian gives the orders, but he was probably only visiting Britain for a very short period of time and he had to go back to Rome to do some governing. It's the soldiers, the soldiers of the garrison of Britain that actually build the wall. They're known as legionaries and they're distinct from auxiliaries that garrison the wall. They are the citizen soldiers of the Roman Empire. They're the frontline troops and they faced a pretty daunting challenge as we said it's 73 miles long 80 roman miles 15 foot tall supposedly exactly yeah uh, you've got to dig a, a, a big uh, a continuous ditch a continuous wall you've got all of these installations to build and although the terrain in the east and west is fairly gentle fairly flat particularly in the central sector so around houseteads fort for example there's lots of high hard rocky crags to cross and the wall goes straight over them. <laughs> Don't go around them, they go straight over them. There are rivers to cross as well. And the building process involves having to gather a lot of resources and to lay a lot of bricks or turf uh, in the western sector. And there may even have been some local tribes who are hostile potentially to the builders' presence there. Fortunately, the legions are well equipped to deal with this. In addition to their ability to fight, the legions would have been well-trained to build and they would have had effectively professional engineers, surveyors, uh, mm. builders who would have done this kind of thing all the time. So in, in a sense, we call it Hadrian's Wall, but it's kind of the legions' wall to a certain extent. And they probably would have worked on it for anywhere between sort of four and ten years up here living along the line of the wall up from their bases in the south. It's quite a short amount of time, I think, in ancient times to have created something that is so long. Yeah, and we don't know for certain how long it took. We, we, these are sort of uh, guesstimates, for, okay. for want of a better word. But it's important to remember that when the Roman army wanted to get something done, they got it done. So it must have involved thousands of people. We don't know for certain. And we actually have a surprising amount of information about these legions of men that were involved in building the wall. So we know that there was definitely three of them. The second le legion, Augusta, the Majestic, they get a little sort of name at the end. Sixth legion, Vitrix, the Victorious. And the 20th legion, Valeria, Vitrix, Valiant and Victorious. I don't think any of them were referred to as the modest from what I've seen so far. <laughs> Each was divided into groups of 80 men, which was called a century, and it was led by a centurion. What's That's really in interesting that a century is 80 <laughs> and not 100 then. I was going to say, and the Roman mile doesn't match up to our no. modern one either. Okay. And when each of these sort of centuries completed a section of the wall, they carved their name, well, their centurion's name, and sometimes their legion, into the stones. And we have 53 of these surviving, and four of which can be attributed to one centurion, Lucius Suavez. It's interesting. Is it sort of an element of preservation that that section of the wall has survived really long? Or was this guy just a really hard taskmaster in terms of really cracking the whip and getting his century to build more than the rest? So it's lovely to have those personal touches where we have the names of people that have spent all that time 
building it. I mean, we have graffiti and we have shirts say, and stuff as is well. That a, is that a deliberate thing or is it uh, almost like I was here sort of marking? The centurion zones are definitely deliberate. So they look more official than graffiti does. Essentially, right. it is a carved stone that has been inserted into the wall. But we do get... A bit like a plaque. But, yeah, yeah, essentially. Yes, but we do get graffiti, but we get graffiti on the wall, but we also get it on objects as well. And that's how we can establish some of the names of the soldiers that weren't commemorated in these centurial stones. Do they have dates on? No, well, unfortunately That's a real not. shame, because <laughs> then you could real, really map how long... The progress of the wall. Yeah. I mean, that would be the dream, but... Unfortunately, oh, it's no. been lost to history. If they had dates on, well, I'd be able to give you a very precise a- answer as to how long it took. Unfortunately, yeah. we can't uh. do that. So, Rachel, we've talked about the centurions, the legions involved in the building of the wall. What about the soldiers who went and occupied that wall after construction? So we don't know the numbers for certain. We know that auxiliaries were stationed at 15 forts along Hadrian's Wall. And Auxiliaries are non-citizen soldiers, so they're drawn from all across the empire. At Chester's, we have the Asturians at Birdoswald. We've got the Dacians, so modern Romania. At Housteads, there's evidence for Syrian auxiliaries. Mm. And what's interesting is that a lot of them did settle here because being an auxiliary... If you survived your 25 years, you were awarded citizenship at the end, which gave you all the rights of a Roman citizen. So that's really important in terms of your everyday life and what you can achieve. And to sort of prove this as proof of your 25 years service, you were essentially given a copper alloy certificate. And we found several of these along the wall. And these confer the rights on them. But it also shows that at the end of their 25 year service, they decided to stay on Hadrian's Wall. They'd built up a life here, and this was essentially where they'd chosen to retire to. And we can see the families that are settling here and potentially re-enlisting into the army in later generations. Gravestones at Corbridge, really sadly actually for children. They bear evidence of Germanic or Celtic names. And at Bedoswald, we've got Dacian names appearing on gravestones. What's, what's Dacian? From modern Romania. Um, so we're seeing that these names are being passed down. I think Decabalus is one of the names, and he was this great military leader, and that's being used 100 years after this military leader was alive. So they're really trying to preserve their heritage. Uh, this really shows, I was gonna, just before you jump in there, Andrew, this really shows that Roman Britain, uh, Northern Britain, is a real melting pot of uh, cultures from across the Roman Empire. This is um, a really multicultural society. Yes, and it shows how successfully the Romans assimilated groups of peoples that they had conquered into their mm. empire. Come and join our club. You'll yes. get citizenship. <laughs> yes. Um, You'll or get die. Rights. Exactly. And, and yeah. that sometimes it probably wasn't a choice, as, as Rachel said. Mm. It may, may come with the threat of, of extinction. But if, um, you, if you join the army and defend the empire, exactly. then you're in the right, on the right side, aren't you, in a way? Exactly. And the name Decebalus is, is, is really interesting because... Decebalus was the name of the, the Dacian king that Hadrian's father, Trajan, fought against, defeated and killed during his wars, his wars of conquest in Dacia. So then a hundred or so years later, these troops from Dacia are now garrisoning Hadrian's wall and protecting the empire from those outside. That's a real 180 degree pivot, isn't it, really? Mm. Oh, fascinating. You know, one minute you're you're conquered, the next minute you're potentially the conqueror. 
And although the Dacians probably would have looked a lot like other Roman soldiers, they would have had the same kind of material culture, they probably would have spoken Latin, I would imagine, by this time, they still maintained, they still retained that kind of cultural memory and actually proudly proclaimed their, their Dacian heritage in a lot of their official documentations, the inscriptions they put up in their forts, their, their names, of course, as well. Hmm. And we do see that in the material culture as well. So the objects left behind, uh, housesteads, we've got Frisian pottery. So they're importing the forms from home, essentially, or making them on site in local materials because they want to keep on using these forms. But we also see them keeping their native gods, as Andrew said, from the inscriptions. Often they're still honoured as well because the Romans could be relatively relaxed about religion as long as you were sort of worshipping the Roman emperor and it wasn't sort of causing you to rebel against the Roman empire it was kind of a little bit of you do you and um, we'll let you be but just toe the line so it's quite interesting to see these inscriptions these forms and these names continue to appear that there was there was still that pride even if they did decide to settle in Britain long term. So there's still a sense of sort of individual national if you can say that word identity but within a greater empire. Yes I mean there wasn't quite the, as you put it in inverted commas, there isn't quite that sense of nations, but there is that sense of identity, identity of, yeah, cultural identity of, mm. of where where your origins have been, and sort of incorporating that into where you want to go. So we've established that there is this massive construction taking place across seventy three miles. It's taking a certain number of years. We don't know because there's no ev- no evidence, or very little. What is life like along? that stretch and here we are on the edge of the roman empire in northern britain well military life could be tough could be dangerous of course there's obviously the threat of having to fight against potential enemies but that's not the main thing that the soldiers would have done on a daily basis they are living their whole lives on Hadrian's Wall. They are probably doing a bit of patrolling, they're probably doing a lot of waiting about and watching, waiting for things to happen, potentially having to engage the enemy, but that we don't we have very slight evidence of actual fighting taking place on Hadrian's Wall. Probably the rest of the time they're they're doing more sort of mundane things like uh, cooking for themselves, clearing, repairing their equipment. And probably having a fair bit of leisure time as well to spend the money that they would earn. And as auxiliaries, they weren't quite paid as much as the legionaries that built the wall, but they were still paid quite handsomely compared to the general population. So they may well have indulged in a bit of gambling. There were opportunities in the the Vicai, the the settlements that were outside the forts for them to spend their money in inns and in different shops. And actually, the Roman army did look after their soldiers quite effectively. So at Housesteads, there is a large hospital. There is also a bathhouse in every fort. And Roman bathing is a little bit more like a a modern spa. So it's probably quite a a nice bit of uh, luxury on a cold winter's uh, evening. To be fair, they didn't shower very often. So whilst it would have been luxurious, (laughs) I mean, if you're only doing that once a month, (laughs) I wouldn't have wanted to shower. You don't want to be last in the water, basically. But the height of civility and luxury for that time. Exactly, Mm. yeah. And that's available to everyone, not just the elite. Um, so it's a real way for Roman soldiers to mix with the locals. Yeah, it could be that the, the bathhouses are actually located outside of the forts mm. on, along Hadrian's Wall. So probably the locals had access to that as well. 
And we get a real sense of what life was like in a series of letters that were found at Vindolanda and they're now in the British Museum. So these are wafer-thin pieces of wood and they've actually got ink and handwriting on. So usually when we find evidence of writing, it's on wax tablets where the sort of the pen, the the stylus has gone all the way through and it's sort of embedded in the wood behind. So you get sort of often overlays of a series of letters. But these are notes that were thrown into waterlogged soil and so they were preserved. And we get a huge amount of information about life and it really sort of brings through that sort of human story in the sense that I think we do forget with it being 1900 years ago that, that actually some things never change. Several letters are IOUs or asking for money because they've got a sort of Del Boy style deal going on. If you send me X, I can buy this number. We're definitely going to make a profit sort of style. We've got soldiers calling each other brother. There's one slightly passive aggressive note where one soldier says, and how are you? I wouldn't know because you haven't replied to any of my letters. Oh, really? There's really strong relationships going on, even though people are sort of stationed miles apart. So we're really sort of getting a sense of brotherhood relationships but also how things don't really change i mean as andrew says we get the sense that there was quite a lot of leisure time so corbridge roman town set back slightly from the wall that's where a lot of the soldiers were sent for sort of rest and relaxation at many of these forts we're also finding game sports and sometimes potentially cheats dies as well well, dice so um, we've got at corbridge we've got a die that's got two number ones on it and no number six. <laughs> so, you know, people weren't always behaving as perhaps they should be. That's very human, isn't it? I mm-hmm. must say. You've talked about a bit of, about how life was like there, but we're, we're talking about, you know, the, the northern edge of Britain, it gets rather cold, especially in the winter. I mean, do these letters reveal anything about what the weather was like? There's reference to socks and pants being sent to help keep them warm. But I, I think we have this image often of people coming from warmer climes to Britain. But I actually think the climate would have been fairly similar for a lot of sort of auxiliaries to where they've been living previously. So it wouldn't necessarily have been such a shock as as we think it might have been. And also the Romans built pretty good buildings. They had fires, they had stoves. Some of the more elaborate buildings in the forts, so those that were provided for the officers, would have had central heating they would have had some of the, the, the officers would have had slaves in their household to kind of take care of them and make sure that they were sort of looked after. Mm. Um, things like the, the fires and the central heating kept burning. So they were quite, some of them were quite pampered. So underfloor heating, this sort of thing? Underfloor fe- heating, yes, definitely. How did that work? Because that is the thing that we see on Grand Designs uh, all the time these days. If you want to build a new house, you've got to have underfloor heating. You don't want any radiators. So how did the Romans do it? Well, it's a pretty standard Roman technology. It's how their bathhouses work. Basically, you have a, a furnace, which is kept stoked throughout the day. You have a kind of a floor cavity, a raised floor, and then the hot air is sort of driven throughout the building and also up the walls so as well. So it would be a wooden floor? With no, it's a stone, probably a stone, a stone floor. Okay, but um, with a, a hollow underneath? Yes, with a cavity underneath. Right. So the hot air is sort of driven throughout the, throughout the floor, yes. So you can walk along barefoot... Possibly not barefoot. You might have to wear, uh, the okay. Romans did wear um, uh, wooden, almost, almost like wooden clogs as right. well to make sure that they didn't burn their feet in, in, in the bathhouses. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's, 
it's fascinating. Uh, it's it's that really sort of humanizes the the experience up there. So life life wasn't really that bad then. No, um, it depends as well. Ro- Roman society is quite stratified, so there's there's a distinctive hierarchy, and life for those at the bottom is very different from life for those at the top. So. One thing we need to remember is Rome is Rome was a slave-owned society, and although we don't have a lot of direct evidence for what the lives of the slaves were like, it was probably very difficult. They're the ones that are stoking the fires to make sure everyone else is warm. They're the ones doing the sort of the dirty, unseen jobs. Mm-hmm. And if you're, say, a lowly soldier, you may well be comparatively well off compared to others in society. But if you're living, you're living ten to a barrack, you know, and, and a barrack might only be of ten meter by, you know, five metre space, and you've got 10 of you in there, you're living in close proximity to your brothers, probably don't have your own bed, probably have to share with somebody, living in each other's pockets. And that compared to, say, the commanding officer, who's probably the Roman equivalent of, say, a a millionaire, your life is very different. So the commanding officers would have lived in, in very elaborate houses, built around a courtyard, multiple suites of rooms, hypercourses to make sure that they are warm dining rooms, your own study, your own stables, that kind of thing. And you are effectively living a life of luxury, probably dining parties, fine food, fine wines, and you're only maybe there for a couple of years before you're going to get posted to somewhere else in the empire, whereas the soldiers, the ordinary soldiers, would spend most of their lives in the same place. The way you described everything there, it sounds as though this was a very permanent settlement. And yet, over time, Rome crumbles and these soldiers disappear and the wall also crumbles because obviously we don't have a 15-foot wall anymore. So at what stage does Hadrian's Wall become vacated? Well, the Roman Empire officially ends in Britain in about AD 410. That's when... The central government effectively cuts the purse strings and stops paying the soldiers. And that's about 300 years after Hadrian yeah. gave his orders for it to be built. Exactly. So it's already survived for 300 years now. And by this point, the soldiers who have been living in these forts have probably been there for many different generations. And it's not like, as perhaps we used to believe uh, decades ago, the Romans went home <laughs> back to Italy because, of course, none of them are from Italy. They've been living for many generations in this extended community on Hadrian's Wall. And we know, particularly from excavations at Bert Oswald's Roman fort, that the garrison stayed. Life probably looked somewhat different after the end of the Roman Empire. They built different buildings, perhaps the social structures were different, but they carried on living in the fort for more than 100 years. So these British Romans just became British, effectively, with the disappearance of the Roman influence. They just stayed. They just stayed. We don't know what they would have called themselves. They don't know what their identity was by this point. Maybe they thought of themselves as from Bird Oswald or from Housesteads, perhaps, at this time. But they certainly now identified with the local landscape, with their locality. So how much of Hadrian's Wall do we see today? I understand, obviously, it's a lot smaller because... It's fallen down in places and I presume people have taken the stone for building materials and that sort of thing. Exactly. So actually a lot of Hadrian's Wall has been incorporated into churches, into other buildings all along 
what remains of the wall. And I mean, a lot of it was incorporated into what's now the military road as well. It wasn't really until the 1800s that people started to be interested in it and want to preserve it as a historical monument. And so that's sort of a tradition that English heritage has, has taken over today in sort of preserving a number of the sites. So Corbridge, uh, I've mentioned it before, this is sort of a frontier town. So rest and relaxation, garrisons were here, it was a fort. Soldiers were based here at, at several different stages, but it was also very much a functioning town. So we have an incredible wealth of material culture from all walks of life. And that's what makes it such a great site. Mm. And then we've got Chester's, which is definitely more of sort of a fort. And we have children and families here, but it gives a very different flavour of life. We've got hundreds of, of altars preserved here, giving us a sense of the gods that these soldiers would have worshipped, as well as remains of the site. So it gives us a very different insight into the life of the soldiers and, and families and, and how people would have lived. So specifically about what survives today, what can people visit? Well, as Rachel has mentioned, you can visit Corbridge, which is a, a Roman frontier town, Chester's, which is a cavalry fort. There's also Housesteads, which is probably the most spectacular fort along Hadrian's Wall. It sits on top of a ridgeline and a lot of very high standing buildings. So it's the best place really to understand what a Roman fort would have looked like and you can see where people are living. There's also Bud Oswald's uh, Roman fort as well, which is within a, a short walk of all of the different elements of the frontier system. So you get a, a nice stretch of the curtain wall, the curtain wall itself. You get a mile castle, you get a turret, you get a bit of the vallum, you get a bit of the turf wall, which is one of the rarest sections of, of Hadrian's Wall. And indeed one of the bridges that the Romans built in order to cross the river Earthing. Other than that, there are also just long stretches where you can walk the curtain wall and you can discover mile castles and turrets. Places, all the remnants of them. All the remnants of them, yeah. yeah. In some places, they're, they're quite high standing. The highest standing portion of, ha of Hadrian's Wall is at Hare Hill, uh, where it stands up to almost about three metres high. It really depends on what you want. So if you want to understand how the wall worked... Go to Bird Oswald because you can see all of the different elements. If you want to sort of see what life would have been like and kind of sort of see that kind of windswept grandeur of, of housesteads, then go there. If you want to walk down a Roman street, go to Corbridge. I think my personal favourite is probably Chester's, where we have one of the best preserved Roman bathhouses in Britain. And you can really get a sense of how the soldiers would have enjoyed that little bit of luxury, perhaps after a a hard day on patrol. But my advice, if you're, if, you're looking, if you're thinking to plan your visit, would be to try and do as many of those things as possible because there's so much about Hadrian's Wall. It's got so many different dimensions that you really need to experience all of the different facets. Yes, because it, it was a lived wall. It was something that people built mm -hmm. and they didn't just leave it, they lived along it. Indeed. Um, and they still do today. You know, Hadrian's mm. Wall is still a thriving community and, and, and people live there and live with that history every day of their lives. What was discovered along the wall, Rachel? Any artefacts? Any You mentioned the letters that we can see in the British Museum. Any other sort of interesting things? You mentioned the die as the, or the dice as well. I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a, a lot has been found. I mean, that's that's why we can tell so much about these people's lives. And that's what's absolutely fascinating about it. So each of the sites mentioned 
have a museum attached with them that showcases life on the wall. So at Corbridge, we've got all sorts of things. We've got imported glass with a blue leopard painted on it. We've got stonework, we've got inscriptions, we've got a gold ring that was a betrothal token. As I said, we've got the the cheats die, we've got games boards. If you go to Chester's, you have these amazing pieces of jet jewellery, tools that the Romans would have used. We've got hundreds of altars and these give a sense of daily life who they would have worshipped but we've also got graffiti on some of these and drawings that were done and incorporated into buildings so these are alongside all of the remains that Andrew's mentioned Bird Oswald we have graves of children and showing sort of that sense of loss out of all the artifacts that have been discovered what would be your favorite and which do you think probably tells the most human story of Roman life along Hadrian's Wall I wouldn't really know which one to pick because each one does give... Was there a party invitation or something? Oh, yeah. Um, so that's the Vindolander tablet. As I mentioned earlier, yeah, the Vindolander tablet, there's a birthday invitation from a commander's wife to a friend saying that she really hopes that this friend can come because she'd really love to see her. So giving that sense of those personal relationships on the wall. But for me... I often find some of the gravestones the most moving. So we've got one at at Corbridge to a Germanic little girl. We know that the name is a pet name and it must be Germanic in origin, but it actually counts out the number of days that she was alive. And so it really gives you that sense of... And how many was it? Loss. I think it was four years and ten days. That idea of they really want to memorialise that presence. And I find it so moving because I think often when we think about Hadrian's Wall, we do think about the soldiers who built it, who lived there, who underwent hardship. But we do sometimes forget about the families that came with them that set up new lives, who had to settle in, possibly without the same sort of brotherhood network that these soldiers had. And the sense that these soldiers had a life outside what they were doing on the wall. Mm. And how similar lives could be, that people are loving, that they're living their lives, and that unfortunately, like today, we do lose people too early. So listening to what you've just said there, Rachel, about those memories, uh, how they sort of live on, um, this is probably a question to both of you really, but Rachel first, um, what would you say is the legacy then of, of Hadrian's Wall? I think That's a big question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it is. I think, I mean, we could think of legacy in terms of the objects and the understanding of the life left behind, but it, it has inspired so many people since to investigate it, to walk it, to explore it. And actually, in some ways, it was an instant icon as well. There are these amazing little cups, often enamelled, so brightly coloured, that are decorated with the names and designs of the forts. So there's the Rudge Cup, and that's currently in Annick Castle, but they have been found as far afield as Amiens in France. Mm. So the idea that it was considered important to have gone to this furthest edge of the empire and to commemorate it with a souvenir. To be honest, that's what I do as well. I always pop into the gift shop on my way out. So, <laughs> so it's just this idea that even then it was considered to have a legacy. It was something to be remembered by those who visited it. It was an important site at the time then, Andrew. Yeah, I, I think people in the empire would have would have known about it. And when Hadrian made it, it what well, when Hadrian I say Hadrian made it, when Hadrian ordered its construction, it all seemed as though he was making a point to do something that hadn't been done before. But it's really important to remember Hadrian gave the order, but it's not Hadrian that makes the wall a success. It's the the people that built it, 
the people that came to operate it, the genera- subsequent generations that made this home. And it's thanks to them and thanks to the communities that have inhabited the line of Hadrian's Wall over the centuries that we are still talking about it and finding it fascinating almost 1900 years later. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more details about Hadrian's Wall site, head to the English Heritage website and also listen to our special podcast series. Next week, we're talking gardens and preparing for the new season. My team's responsibility is also the settings of our wider sites, how they fit into the landscape and the stories they tell. So in a way, my job is telling England's garden story. Thanks for listening. See you next time.